think and then teach incorrectly concerning who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ has done. Now hang with me. We're going to talk more about abiding in a moment. But because the false teaching is subtle and deceptive, John writes with such clarity. Verses 22 and 23. Look at these with me. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Verse 26. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. John is writing this letter because there are people trying to deceive Christians. So friends, here is the wonderful news that John gives us. He's writing to God's people who are being deceived by Antichrist, false teaching. We can assume that they're pretty discouraged. They're pretty confused. They're disillusioned. And what's John's advice? What's his antidote for the Antichrist? He exhorts listeners and he says, the answer to the Antichrist is abiding. So we're going to get at this 1 John 2 text by asking three questions today. First of all, what does it mean to abide? What does it even mean to abide? Abide is such a Bible word. It's such a Christian thing to say. What does it mean to abide? Secondly, how do we abide? And then third, what is the benefit of abiding? Keep in mind, this is no new concept from John. John simply referring back to what he had heard from Jesus and recorded in the gospel that he wrote in John chapter 15. It says this, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. In John 15, he says, hey, you want to abide in Christ because that is where your joy will reach the fullest potential. So what does it mean to abide? Abiding is practicing the presence of God in all things. That's what it means. It means to practice the presence of God in all things, everywhere I am, all the time. Right now, by this church gathering, we are abiding right now in Christ because we are here and we have committed to be here. Andrew Murray, pastor and theologian who served in South Africa in the late 1800s, early 1900s, wrote a book called Abide in Christ. He says this, It is to be feared 
that there are many earnest followers of Jesus from whom the meaning of this word, with the blessed experiences it promises, is very much hidden. While trusting in their Savior for pardon and for help, and seeking to some extent to obey Him, they have hardly realized to what closeness of union, to what intimacy of fellowship, to what wondrous oneness of life and interest He invited them when He said, Abide in me. Abiding, Brother Lawrence says, is the practice of the presence of God. I said a moment ago, abiding is practicing the presence of God in all things. That's my twist on what Brother Lawrence says here. This, mo- this weekend, before my two boys and I uh, came up uh, on Saturday, uh, we came up, we went to Des Moines last night. Uh, and then on Friday night, though, um, there was this unique time where my oldest son, who is away at college, and his girlfriend were here or in Omaha with us. And I just had this worshipful moment. We were all around the table, and I just thought, wow, this is amazing. And this is from the Lord. It was actually in that moment, a moment of abiding in Christ, practicing the gifts of God, the presence of God in all things, just around my normal dining room table. And you too, friends, can do this. Abiding in Him is living in a way that organizes all of your life around the practices of the presence of God. To work, to rest and play, to eat and drink, hang out with friends, run errands, catch up on things, all out of this place of deep, loving enjoyment of the Father's company. This is wild but God wants to be with you. He wants to be with us, and He invites us to abide with Him. Here's the good news of the gospel of Jesus. Not the content of the gospel, but God initiates the abiding. All of the abiding that we do with God is initiated by Him. It starts with God abiding in us by His Spirit and His truth, which means that for the Christian... Your abiding in Him is a response to His abiding in you. Look at verses 20 and 21 in 1 John 2. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, it says, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no one lies, no lie is of the truth. You've been anointed by the Holy One, verses 20 and 21. Verse 24, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. Verse 27, but the anointing that you received from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in Him. He's saying everything you need for life and godliness, that's what Paul would say, Everything that you need, you have if you abide in Christ. So what gives you the ability to face false teaching, to go through hard times, to be super discouraged, to cry one day and laugh the next? What gives you the ability to not be tossed back and forth is the fact that if you are in Christ, the truth of the gospel abides in you. And the Spirit of God abides in you, 
And seeing that truth and remembering that truth in your heart is how we abide. To abide in God is to continue to remain and maintain your relationship with Him. I oversee a lot of the care and counseling at our church in Omaha. There's hundreds of people there. And often when people are facing problems or trials, I will ask them, what is it, what's it look like for you to pray lately? What's it look like for you to read the scriptures lately? And often it's, the answer is, well, I, I just haven't done that lately. Well, sometimes the circumstances that we find ourselves in is this lack of abiding. We've distanced ourselves from remaining and maintaining our relationship in God, which is how we abide. So secondly, how? How do we abide? How do we do it? How do we abide in Christ? John Ortberg uh, tells this story of being, I'm going to kick this thing over here one of these times. Um, John Ortberg tells this story of interacting with Dallas Willard. Dallas Willard was his mentor, and he Uh, He went to Dallas and he said, Dallas, what do I need to become the me that I want to be? Dallas Willard said, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. So John said, okay, what else? And he said, nothing. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. There is nothing else else. The hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day, so you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life, Dallas Willard told John Ortberg. Corey Tenboom once said that if the devil can't make you sin, then he'll make you busy. There's truth in that, isn't there? Both sin and busyness have the exact same effect. They cut off our connection to God, to other people, even to our own souls. We live in a really hurried moment. Now, this community, your church in particular, has been halted by death and by grief and by the shock of that. And that disorients us. But prior to that, it kind of slows us down, doesn't it? But prior to that, we're all hurried. We're scattered We all know that this gym, in fact, was filled that Monday. And I saw pastor friends that I haven't seen in years here. But you know what happened on that Wednesday, that Thursday? Most of us went back to our normal lives. And some of you did not. And those of us who went back to our normal lives, we went back to a very hurried existence. Before Thomas Edison invented the light bulb in 1879, the average person slept 11 hours per night. Imagine. Famous Senate subcommittee in 1967 was told by 1985, the average American would only work 22 hours per week and 27 weeks out of the year. All the futurists thought that the main problem we would be facing today would be too much leisure time. Now the average American works nearly four more weeks per year than they did in 1979. Now granted, there's a healthy kind of busyness when your life is filled with things that matter. And I know that right now in 
this part of the country, life is filled with busyness because it's harvest season and there's really no other busy time on the calendar is there than this particular time of the year. So there's certain kinds of busyness that we fill our lives with that matter. And Jesus himself was busy. Jesus was busy. But you never get the sense from reading the scriptures that Jesus was hurried. Hurry is the great enemy of our abiding with Christ. We have to keep in mind that hurry is not a disordered schedule. Hurry often flows out of a disordered heart. Hurry can be a sign that you're running away from something. Insecurity, fear of failure, boredom. Hurry can also be a sign that you're running toward the wrong things. Addiction, the next promotion, the next relationship, the next experience. To gain a sense of success, self-worth, and love. If you fall into, into the lie, the believing that you're only as good as your last performance, then friend, you will always be living in a constant state of hurry. So how do you ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life? How do you abide? Silence, that's how. One of the ways that we can abide with God is silence. I told a guy last week, in my office, one of my goals is to just help you be okay being alone. He's just frantic all of the time. So silence is one way. St. Augustine once said that entering into silence is entering into joy. Let's not underestimate the power of daily time just being silent with the Lord, where we turn the radio off on the way home or where we just sit in a chair a little bit longer? Where can you sit with God, with God's Word, allowing His Word and your soul to just soak it in? Allowing the Spirit and the truth that abides in you to get a word in before you run into your day? The other way is Sabbath. One full day a week to stop a day set apart for rest and worship. I've learned Sabbath, not because I'm in ministry and know the Scripture and what the Scripture has to say about it. I know Sabbath from watching my father-in-law as a farmer. He has taught me everything about Sabbath because he's one of the hardest working men I know. I think he is the hardest working man I know. And even during harvest or planting, or helping somebody else do harvest in Montana, he will take a full stop on Sunday. And that has taught me a lot. I've learned Sabbath from the farm. Dan Allender in his book on Sabbath says this, the Sabbath is an invitation to enter delight. The Sabbath, when experienced as God intended, is the best day of our lives. Without question or thought, it's the best day of the week. It's the day that we anticipate on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, and the day we remember on Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. Sabbath is the holy time where we feast, play, dance, have sex, sing, pray, laugh, tell stories, read, paint, walk, and watch creation in its fullness. I caught your attention if you were sleeping a moment ago. That sounds great, doesn't it? But listen, Allender goes on to say, 
Few people are willing to enter the Sabbath and sanctify it, to make it holy, because a full day of delight and joy is more than most people can bear in a lifetime, let alone a week. 1 Thessalonians 4.11 encourages us to aspire to live quiet lives. The disciplines of silence and Sabbath invite you to unhurry yourself. They're an invitation to abide. And that's why they're biblical and why the Lord gives them to us. They're an invitation to allow your soul to catch up to your mind and for your mind to catch up to your body. God invites you by His Spirit and by His truth to abide through some practices. So, we've talked a little bit about what it means to abide, how we can cultivate a life of abiding. John leaves us with a benefit. And like good old Americans, we want to know, What's in it for me? Why would I do this? What is the benefit of abiding? Why would we partake? Apart from the obedience of abiding, which would be good enough, we learned a little bit about obedience last week in that particular chunk of Scripture. This Scripture says that we should not just do it. That is a good enough reason, by the way. But we live in a world that always wants to know what's in it for me. So here's what's in it for you in this verse. And now... Little children, I'm trying to find the reference because we have quite a few here, and I didn't write it down appropriately. Anyway, in 1 John, somewhere between 7 through 27, you have this verse right here. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. So the benefit of abiding is confidence. Confidence now and at the time of his coming. I don't know about you, but I want to stand in confidence at his coming. We've been rattled with how fragile life is. Do you want to stand in confidence at Christ's coming? Later on in his life, while imprisoned on the island of Patmos, God gave John a vision for what the second coming of Jesus would be like. It's recorded in Revelation 19, 11 through 16. It's a vision of Jesus that we perhaps often overlook. It says this, Then I saw a new heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arraigned in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. This is quite the vision. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thighs he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's the vision that we have in Revelation 19. Friends, we want to stand in confidence at his coming. So I started briefly by talking about my lack of confidence. I want to invite you into this confidence that John gives us. The benefit of abiding 
is a benefit of confidence. Now, right now, today, and also at the time of his coming, if you are in Christ here today. I started by talking also about the Antichrist. And in 2 Thessalonians 2.8, when it speaks about the man of lawlessness, it says this, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. 2 Thessalonians 2.8. Friends, the Antichrist will be destroyed, and the Antichrist will shrink back from him in shame. But those of us in Christ will not. We have this benefit of abiding to stand in confidence. And the last thing that this community needs is a spiritually unconfident people. The last thing that this community needs is a spiritually arrogant people. We've all seen those people. Maybe you grew up around some of them. Maybe they had all the answers about the Antichrist. They leave a bad taste in our mouths, don't they? The last thing we need in our grief and in our sadness is a lack of confidence. But what we do want, what you want, and what I want is a humble confidence. The people you trust, think about this, the people you trust, the people that you watch, the people that you pay attention to, those people have a humble confidence about them, don't they? That's what we want. We want to stand in confidence at his coming. So if you are unsure of where you're at spiritually, I just want to invite you to come to Christ this morning, to trust in Jesus as the Son of God and as the Savior of your life, and to invite you into abiding in Christ for the first time. And for those of us who are Christians, this is a reminder from 1 John 2 to us to abide. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Andrew Murray's wonderful book, Abide in Christ. I'll close with this quote and we'll pray. Who would, after seeking the king's palace, be content to stand in the door when he is invited to dwell in the king's presence? And share with him in all the glory of his royal life. That's what he asks. Who would do that? Why would we stand at the door when we can come in? Oh, let us enter in and abide. And enjoy to the full all the rich supply his wondrous love hath prepared for us. Would you pray with me? Lord, Jesus, Son, Savior, thank you for giving us 1 John 2. Thanks for commanding us to love you, to obey you, but thanks for inviting us with this earnestness that you, you seem to have given John, this earnestness to abide in Christ's love, to be reminded to it, to be invited into it, to explain to it a little bit in this text what it is. And it's our obedience that frees us to enjoy every good thing that we can have in Christ. We don't need a benefit of abiding because obedience would be enough, but you invite us to this confidence. You invite us to this benefit, this gift of confidence when you show up again through our abiding. 
Would you give us the ambition to live quiet, abiding lives? Would you teach us how to live at the peace and also with the pace of grace and by the rhythms of the gospel that we need? May the truth of the gospel and your spirit that abides in us become more precious to us than riches, success, the pursuits of this world. And would we find great freedom, joy, and confidence in abiding in you. And God, lastly, I just pray that you would be with this church, that you would be with them in the clunkiness of their grief, that you would meet them with your kindness, that you would meet them in grace and mercy, and that you would be with each one of them as they continue on in perseverance. In your name, amen.